0: Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein, and I'm the director of content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you might know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Podcast. We're here today with Bob Michel. Bob is the Chief Investment Officer and Head of the Global Fixed Income Currency and Commodities Group at J.P. Morgan. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in investing in fixed income?
1: Well, like most investors who started in the early 80s in the market, I was actually a balanced fund manager. So I managed equities and fixed income and cash. And in the end, I lost confidence in how equities could be valued. They were the bottom of the capital structure. They could be anything. And the math behind fixed income made an inordinate amount of sense to me. So ultimately, I gravitated towards fixed income. At the time, I should add that yields in the bond market were double digit, not zero or negative.
0: Right. So you're not a member of the Gold of Equities then?
1: (laughs) Not exactly.
0: Very good. So you write an annual bonds awards article which is sort of a a, a tongue-in-cheek take on events in the bond markets, in central bank activity, and, and general activity in the fixed income markets. Can you tell us a little bit about how these awards got started? Sure.
1: When you get to the end of the year and you think back on the year, so many things happen. And in an era of unconventional policy tools, things happen that nobody ever imagined. So I created the awards as a way to catalog them, and since it's the holiday season generally around the world. I try to have some fun with it and make it entertaining enough so that people will enjoy reading it, but get something out of it. And I think we've been able to do that over the last few years. Yes.
0: Is this an attempt at making bonds sexy?
1: <laughs> it's always the aspiration.
0: Very good. So I thought these awards were actually a good entry point into talking about some of the events last year. One big one was the inversion of the yield curve. Um, There's been much made of this, but the majority of the time it was uh, mainly the three-month versus the 10-year, which is not the general measure used to identify crises, which is more often the two-year versus the 10-year. But that only happened for a very short time last year. What is your take on this inversion?
1: First of all, the award that it won was villain in a leading role, because everyone knows that an inverted yield curve generally presages recession. And and every recession has been coincident with an inverted yield curve in the U.S., generally a year to a, a year and a half earlier. And I think that was a warning shot to the central banks. The Fed in particular, they looked at that and they knew they had to respond with ease. And we knew they had to respond with ease. And the thing that was gripping the U.S. and global economy was the trade war between the U.S. and China, which had effectively created a global manufacturing recession. Both the three-month to the 10-year and the two-year to the 10-year were inverted in July. So both of them were inverted. We focused on the three-month to the 10-year because that's what the Federal Reserve focuses on. And if you think about it, The U.S. government bond market is one of the largest and most liquid markets in the yield in the in the world. So if the universe of U.S. government bond investors globally are willing to take a lower yield for 10 years than they get from putting money on three month deposit with treasury bills, that's telling you something. I think in this particular instance, that you're talking about. Actually, what happened is three-month to two-year became inverted because three-month is effectively pegged to the Fed funds rate, and the two-year began to price in a lot of ease coming from the Federal Reserve, which eventually they did. They cut rates three times. I think both were pretty accurate. I think the Fed took the warning shot and responded and consequently has mitigated the probability of recession quite a bit. Yes,
0: so they responded in an appropriate manner in this instance?
1: Certainly from a bond investor's perspective, they did.
0: In these awards, you also raised an interesting idea about uh, measures that can be taken against an inversion of the yield curve. And one of them you speak about is tiering of the official deposit rate. Can you tell us a little bit about how that might work?
1: That's actually a fantastic and and complex topic because it, it occurred in Europe where the central bank brought rates to minus four-tenths of a percent and then moved them to minus half a percent. And this theory is very strong. If they have negative rates, then as bank have as banks have excess reserves, if they put them on deposit, With the central bank they'll generate a negative return so the incentive is to lend them out into the market and help to stimulate growth and while it makes academic sense it actually wasn't working because while the availability and supply of money had increased actually the demand had not increased Uh, so companies weren't looking to borrow excessively so banks had a lot of reserves And we're putting a lot of reserves on deposit and earning minus four-tenths of a percent at the time, and that was impairing their profitability. So the ECB, when they cut rates to minus half a percent, looked at that and said, do you know what? We'll allow the banks to put up to six times their required reserves on deposit with us at zero percent. So we won't charge them half a percent. They move rates to minus half a percent. But anything over six times the required reserves, they would earn that minus half a percent. So it protects the banks in some degree, whereas they accumulate uh, deposits and reserves. If there's not a lot of demand to borrow, they don't get penalized for it. They don't earn anything on it, uh, but they don't get penalized. But then when they start to um, accumulate six times their required reserve position, it becomes punitive, so it still incents them to get out and make loans. So I think this kind of action uh, tells you, one, that the central banks are becoming more creative with how they deploy these unconventional tools. They're learning, uh, and they're still requiring and putting some pressure on the banks to make sure that they get out and extend credit through the system.
0: In the article you wrote, you support central banks trying to do new things and being innovative in their responses. But it also reminded me of a conversation I had a couple of years ago with someone who said to me, you don't want a creative banker. You want a banker that does the same boring thing over and over again and does it well. How creative do you want your central bankers to be?
1: I think had the central banks done the same old thing as the they done over their previous 100 or so years, we would be in a global recession that would be pretty deep. I think the great financial crisis created a lot of damage, um, particularly with sovereign balance sheets and through banking systems. And the central banks had a choice. You could sit there and say, well, that's not our problem. Or you can try to respond and provide accommodation and think of new tools. I'm one for evolving and creating the new tools. I think the global economy has evolved, technology has advanced. You pull out your phone and the things you could do on it. You know we're we're in iPhone 11 now, right? And so it means that only 11 or so years ago, um, the iPhone came out. What's it going to be like when iPhone 20 comes out? You've got to be innovative. You've got to be responsive. The global economy and the global capital markets are evolving too quickly.
0: When you started your career and still believed in equities, you said that interest rates were double ditches. But right now, we're almost in the opposite environment. We're not concerned about high inflation, but more about disinflations. How concerned are you?
1: Well, I'm, I'm very concerned. But but you're right. When, when I started in 1981, Paul Volcker had raised the Fed funds rate from 5% to 20% in five years. And and today, um, I've seen the Federal Reserve go to zero, and I've seen the ECB go to minus half a percent. So I know that official policy rates between 20% and minus half a percent can work. And, And ultimately, you had stable economies coming out of both of those things. I think when you go back to the late 70s, early 80s, There was an inflation shock created by the oil shocks that reverberated through the global economy, and Paul Volcker at the time became creative and tried to break the back of inflation um, and and the spread through uh, prices with with very high interest rates. We're seeing the inversion of that. You're seeing a number of things, largely technology-led, but also the globalization of manufacturing where you have swing capacity to the low cost producer. And you've got a global demographic of aging populations across Europe, the US, and and Japan. And all of those are disinflationary. It doesn't mean that it's going to be a permanent condition. It means that's the hand of cards we've been dealt in the current environment and the central banks are responding to that. At some point in time, all of those things will fade. The globalization will have reached its maximum limit. Technology gains will start on productivity, will start to flatten out. And the demographic trend will change again, for sure. The emerging markets are growing and probably rates will wind up somewhere between minus half a percent and 20 percent, maybe at at the ideal level that the central banks put out there of four to five percent.
0: Sometimes the argument is made that economic measures don't work as well as they used to, and this might be particularly true for inflation. What is your view on this argument?
1: So the central banks themselves are struggling with that, and both the European Central Bank and the U.S. Federal Reserve have initiated strategic reviews of their policy this year. The last time they did that was coming out of the financial crisis, and we saw what that led to. That led to zero and negative interest rates, and it led to quantitative ease. So this is not something to be taken lightly. It means that they are going to take a hard look at it. And clearly what they're going to focus on is the 2% inflation target. Is that realistic and attainable? Should it be changed? Should it be lower to 1.8%, for example? Or will they go with a corridor of one5 to 2.5%? I think that's going to tell us a lot about how the policymakers that matter, the the people that control the global purse strings, view the durability of inflation. Whether they think disinflation is permanently built into the global economy, or whether they think that it's transient. I don't know. My guess is they're going to think it's transient, and they'll go to something more like a corridor of one and a half to two and a half percent, and believe that monetary policy can help
0: manage inflation into that You just briefly mentioned the emerging markets as well. Is that where the opportunities are? And what's your view on Chinese bonds? Um, These bonds have now been included in the emerging market indices, which means there's more money flowing into them. What do you think about this?
1: So uh, emerging, uh, let me answer that first, talking about emerging market debt and then Chinese bonds. Emerging market debt presents a lot of opportunity but a lot of risk. Uh, You have very high real yields. You have capacity for central banks to cut rates a lot. Those are two things that don't exist in the developed markets. And you have currencies that are oversold for good reason. From 2015 to 2018, the Federal Reserve was raising rates and draining liquidity from the system. Everyone fears that the emerging markets are leveraged to liquidity So they were worried. And just as the market started to get beyond that, you had the trade war. And just as the the trade war came to compromise with the phase one trade agreement, you've got coronavirus. So it's made investors very skittish about going into those markets. I think they're attractive. I think the coronavirus will prove to be temporal. And as we get to the second quarter, it will start to appear in the rearview mirror and you've got markets where you can generate a double-digit return. So I like emerging markets. China's interesting in this. The size of their bond market is nearly as big as the U.S. government bond market. There has been an appetite for investors to invest in the offshore market because it's been easier to settle and clear. But the majority of China official debt is in the, is in the onshore market. So you needed an ability to buy, settle and clear. And bond connect was created, which effectively helped to do that through the China interbank bond markets. Uh, So whether you're buying Chinese bonds on the mainland, through Taiwan or Hong Kong, uh, bond connect helped you to settle and clear them. And it's about a year old. And it's created a dramatic influx of money into the China bond market. You talked about China bonds being included in the indices. They were included in the global aggregate index. They're now about to be included in the emerging market debt indices. So I I think you're going to see increased demand for China bonds. Um, How they perform, we're going to have to learn a bit more on how the People's Bank of China responds to things like growth and inflation, uh, deleveraging, and how the official bonds react to that. But right now, everyone's looking to add them to their portfolios. We own them in our portfolios.
0: Do you think they will become quickly part of bond portfolios, or will it remain a bit more of a a niche allocation for a number of years?
1: No, they're, they're going to become a large part of the allocation. As I said, the government bond market is nearly the size of the US bond market. I think the other interesting thing about China is when you start to look beyond the government bond market and you look at the corporate bond market, there are companies being created in China every day that will be global market share leaders in their industry 10 years from now. And if you look at Alibaba and Baidu and Tencent and try to think what were they 10 years ago and what they are today and ultimately a lot of their funding will shift to the bond market, it could be the fastest-growing corporate bond market over the next 10 years.
0: You mentioned the coronavirus, and I was thinking that a lot of geopolitical events can have a significant impact on the markets. How do you deal with geopolitical information? Do you try to incorporate it into the models, or is it more like noise in the market?
1: Well, we break them into known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And if if you go back and look at that, there are some geopolitical events that we know about. We just don't know how they're going to work out. So there's got to be the phase two trade deal between China and the U.S. Whether that proceeds amicably or not will disrupt the market. There's Brexit. We know that has to be agreed to. How companies organize themselves across the U.K. and Europe. Hasn't been settled yet. That that has to occur. And of course, there's this thing that's going to happen in the U.S. in November, the general election, and either we're going to have Trump for a second term, or we're going to have a new president on the Democratic side. And the campaigning begins in earnest. So all those things we came into 2020 expecting that we're going to have to weigh probabilities to figure out if it's good for the economy and for the bond market, and, and then make investment. Now let's get to the unknown unknowns, things that appear out of the blue. So certainly the conflict between the U.S. and Iran, which led to a spike in oil prices, that came out of nowhere. Just as you got your head around pricing that into the market, coronavirus hit. Um, so I'm open to that over this year, There are things we know we're going to have to deal with, but there are going to be things that come out of nowhere that we're going to have to deal with. It's very hard to plan for those.
0: Do you make adjustments to the portfolio when they happen?
1: You have to make adjustments to the portfolio. Prior to coronavirus, it looked as though we had put in a low in yields, that central banks provide a lot of stimulus. If the phase one trade deal would unlock the global manufacturing uh, deadlock, and you get some economic activity, and maybe central banks in some regions could begin to talk about raising rates. And with coronavirus, now you're looking through potentially recession occurring in some parts of the world, um, and ultimately the central banks leaving monetary policy very accommodative and seeing what's going to happen. Um, so these things do create policy responsive. I think what's better at this point in my career than when I started is that the central banks are more transparent about what they're thinking about and how they're going to respond. When I started in the business, no one knew what the Fed funds rate was. It was targeted. So you were looking at open market operations to try and figure out, and you'll laugh at the levels, whether the Fed was trying to target 13 and five-eighths or 13 and a quarter percent on monetary
0: policy. So going back to the bond market, you talked a little bit about emerging markets and some of the risks there. But I believe the investment grade corporate market is not without risk either at the moment. What are your thoughts here?
1: So you're right. Um, There's been leverage that's built up in the US as companies have taken advantage of record low funding levels and borrowed and returned some of that to shareholders. And they borrowed and they've Bought back shares, raised dividends, or frankly bought each other. And at some point a year and a half ago, it looked like it was starting to escalate to a point where not only bond investors were getting worried, but equity investors were getting worried as well. And we all began to push back on on companies. I think you've seen some moderation in that. But the reality is, companies are able to put in place semi-permanent financing at record low levels to service their debt. And as long as the probability of recession is quite low, investors aren't all that worried. And as you see the amount of negative yielding debt, which is now about $13 trillion globally, investors are trying to cycle out of that negative yielding debt, let the central banks own it, and find things that have some yield to it. And the investment-grade U.S. corporate bond market is one of those things. It's not without risk, but I don't think it's one to be particularly worried about right now.
0: There also seems to be a bit more interest in covenant light bonds. Is that something we should worry about? Are we going back to bad lending practices there?
1: So, again, that that's very controversial. Um, it, it, you worry about cov Light bonds when there's a recession because in those environments— Companies don't have enough revenue to service their debt, hence recession is, is negative economic activity. And then ultimately, companies that default on their debt go through a restructuring process. The problem with CoVlite or no covenant uh, structures is bondholders don't have the protections that bondholders normally have. If you go back before the entire CovLite process, in a restructuring, bondholders would take the lead, would have control of the assets, figure out a way to liquidate them, and recover maybe 60 to $0.70 on the dollar. In a CovLite structure, you're finding that usually there's an equity sponsor somewhere that has more rights than the bondholder. And they could move valuable assets out of the structure into another part of perhaps a private equity structure away from the claimants. So it is a concern to me. It's something we look very carefully at. Um, we tend to push back on a lot of COVLITE structures because ultimately, you don't have the protections you need as a bond investor. It won't be a big concern in the current environment where the probability of recession is quite low. But if we get into an environment where the probability of recession rises back up to 40 or 50%, then you're going to see that market drop in price quite a bit. And in a recession, that's when you're going to see the problems become
0: manifest. So we're not heading towards the end of the cycle just yet? The central
1: banks have done a wonderful job elongating the cycle. I guess every central bank wants to be Australia and go 27 years without a recession. What's not to like?
0: Yeah, (laughs) well, bushfires. No, that's true. (laughs) Talking about bushfires, it has caused some companies in Australia to up their game on environmental, social and governance issues. I was for that ESG is hard to do in the fixed income space. Perhaps in the corporate bond space it's a bit easier because you can borrow from equity techniques. But can you do it for sovereign bonds?
1: Well, you're right. When, when people think of, of ESG, it's generally companies, it's largely the equity market, and, and then it's spread to corporate debt. But MSCI, which is the largest provider of ESG ratings, also does it on sovereigns. And I think for a country like Australia, it's an interesting point in time because Australia sits on a wealth of natural resources all of those don't scale very high in ESG. Now, can you penalize a country because of its historic position? And I think in, in today's world, you look at countries like Sweden, which are questioning how Australia is going to handle its natural resources. And that's what MSCI weighs. It, it's going to look at countries that, that have these natural resources and think about what kind of stewards will they be going forward. Will they try to invest the proceeds they earn from those natural resources into more sustainable sources of energy, for example? Um, and, And I think that's the challenge ahead of Australia. The things that it doesn't have to deal with are the social side. I think that's having rights across the entire class for, for the middle and lower classes in some of the emerging markets is important, how women get treated. Those are not things that you typically worry about in the developed markets and governance. Australia, like most of the developed markets, has very strong governments. Um, and we can joke around the political side, but it's true relative to the emerging markets and on the corporate side. So I think Australia is the interesting one for me to watch um, because On the social and government side, it it scores very highly. I can see that over the next couple of years, a little bit of pushback on the environmental side. It was interesting to me to read uh, Governor Lowe's comments at the RBA last week when he talked about the need for some fiscal impulse. And he rattled off the things you would expect, infrastructure spend, technology spend, human rights and then he talked about a transition from natural resources to sustainable resources and and green resources. So if, if that is something that actually occurs, um, then I think uh, Australia will continue to rate very highly on an ESG scoring. It's a complex topic for sure, and sovereigns can't opt out.
0: If we come back to where we started off with the Bond Awards, I thought another interesting point was that you said gold was currency of the year. If I look from an institutional investment point of view, many investors see gold as speculative. They don't see it as having any intrinsic value. Why was gold currency of the year?
1: And how well it did last year and how well it's doing now, and it it flies under the radar. It for sure is always the ultimate tail risk. Generally, the central scenario is moderate moderate growth and inflation. The right-tail risk is there's a surge in growth and inflation. Well, the central banks have been trying for 10 years to create that, haven't been able to do it. But if they do, then gold is the ultimate inflation hedge. The value should go up with all other hard assets. And it's the ultimate left-tail risk If, if, for whatever reason things falter and we head into a recession, the deeper it is, the more the demand for flight to quality and safe havens uh, will increase and and gold will will feature there. So it's always been a good hedge for Terus. What was interesting to me is in the central scenario, suddenly we saw a lot of accumulation of gold and I started to talk to large investors, particularly in Europe, who were you using it as a store of value. And their theory went, I have reserves. I can keep them in the markets, in government bonds, at negative yields and lose money. Or I can own gold as a carry trade. It has no yield. No yield is a pickup in yield for negative yields. And you sit there and you hear that But then you watch the accumulation of gold and you know that's what they're doing. So suddenly, almost in any market, there are buyers of gold out there. So look, it's not surprising this year coming, you know, out of a trade conflict into coronavirus, there will continue to be a bid. But I would also argue that when that fades, you're still going to see buyers, particularly at at the big uh, European life insurance companies um, and insurance companies accumulating.
0: That's an interesting comment. No yield is a pickup from negative yields.
1: This is the world we live in.
0: It's crazy. I read the other day an article where a number of banks in Europe, uh, Germany and in the Netherlands, where they charge negative interest rates on deposits over a certain amount. Now, in the Netherlands, I think it's uh, 50 basis points on any account over a million euros. But in Germany, it's even over amounts of 100,000 euros. How do you look at that?
1: Well, I think that's the distortion that the central banks have have engineered. It, it's one of the problems that they try to address with rate tiering. And it all comes back to the same thing. If on some level of reserves, the banks are going to earn a negative return, how much could they and should they absorb before they push that along to consumers and maybe if they push that along to the retail depositor the retail depositor will think about doing something else with their money and start to spend it rather than save it and that will help to ignite growth it's an experimental policy we haven't seen the final chapter written yet so every year we're going to see something new happen and and this is just the next chapter in that saga
0: So gold was used in a way to protect against negative yields. Exactly. A more modern version of this is arguably cryptocurrencies. They don't have any intrinsic value in themselves, but they are arguably a store of value. And recently there was a research paper by the Bank of International Settlements which said that over 80% of central banks are conducting some sort of research into cryptocurrencies. And some of these banks are even at more advanced stages exploring pilot programs uh, of cryptocurrencies. Now, admittedly, it are mainly developing markets where they have these pilot programs. But do you have any opinions on how this might affect uh, fixed income markets?
1: Well, I, I do. I, I think when you look at, at cryptocurrencies, there are so many things to like about it. One is the entire blockchain concept. So once it it's originated you can track it for eternity if that's what you want. You know where it was originated and the value of it and you never lose track of it no matter how many times it it changes hands. It also tells you that there's a growing part of the new economy in the US we call the millennials that want a digital currency. They don't want to carry credit cards, they don't want to carry cash around, they, and they don't want to worry about, you know, where is their money all the time. So I think the blockchain concept and store of value have merit, and they're things that the central bank are looking at. Now, the central banks have been forced to look at it because when you do look at some of the cryptocurrencies that are out there, it's not clear where they're originated, who's using them, and why they're using them. So if they can be administered through the banking system, somehow, whether it's a central bank or it's commercial banks, then I think it conveys a level of legitimacy to them. I don't know how much it will change the bond markets because the bond markets are a funding mechanism after after all, and, and currencies are more a mechanism to value goods and services. But I do think there is a future. I think we're not that far away from seeing cryptocurrencies become more mainstream, but they'll be properly administered through the banking system, whether it's the central banks or through the commercial banks.
0: Yes, and then the volatility might come down a bit as well. For sure it will. I think at the moment that is one of the key problems as well. About a year ago, I did an exercise for an article where I invested a small amount into cryptocurrencies. I put $60 in there, so if it disappeared, I wasn't too worried. But since then, I saw it climb all the way to $90, then plummet to $30. It's hugely volatile. Yet it's not really what fixed-income investors are looking for, right?
1: Not typically. I think that's a way more volatile than we could ever get used to.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe this is a bit of a left-field question, but uh, we have recently looked into the modern monetary theory, which uh, in the US has received quite some attention in recent years, particularly with the elections. We happen to have one of the key people behind that theory here at the uh, University of Newcastle, Professor Bill Mitchell. This theory has quite different views on inflation and government debt. Do you think that uh, these views are useful?
1: So I, I think any new theories have merit to it, because maybe in some instances like zero interest rate policy and quantitative ease, you can step back and say it worked and... Maybe it worked differently than everyone thought, but it it had some impact. And in things like MMT, you explore them, and people like me step back and say, this is total nonsense. If if the theory is you have one arm of the government, the Treasury, which funds expenditures by raising capital and, and issuing debt, and another arm of the government, I know they're supposed to be independent, but in Japan... I think that's questionable, and that's where most of the MMT discussions come from. You've got a central bank, which then buys the debt by printing its own money, and thereby lowering the cost of funding to the government. You basically step back and say, okay, let me get this right. We need some fiscal stimulus. We're going to spend money. So the Treasury issues a lot of debt. And so the cost of the debt doesn't keep rising as people worry about the amount of spending. We'll have our central bank print its own money and buy the debt. Why not just cancel them off? And I think that's a bridge too far. It's a moral hazard. It will cause me to not want to invest in those markets because the value of the currency has no value. It means it gets printed and funds the government at any level and then just gets canceled away. So what is the proper level of of borrowing? What is the right level of, of money in the system? And what is the fiscal responsibility of the government to actually spend when times are good and rein in spending when things are slow or there's a recession or when you need to create the fiscal stimulus do the borrowing that you can actually manage. Um, and, and I think that's the moral hazard out there. It's certainly something I hope never happens in my lifetime.
0: <laughs> so the debt question is one part of the equation, but the other part of it is that if you run a surplus, MMT argues that you don't end up with savings like households do, but that it is a waste of economic activity because a surplus detracts activity from the private sector. Do you disagree with that too?
1: No, I think there's some merit to that, but I think that's all part of the cost-benefit analysis. If these are policies that you're going to pursue, nothing ever works perfectly for everyone. You have to make your choices. And you make your choices thinking at some point things will revert to a normal cycle, economic activity will be high enough across your economy, that both the public and private sectors will benefit. And that's when deleveraging can occur rationally. So for sure, the public sector gets squeezed out at times, the private sector gets squeezed out at times. To me, that's all part of a healthy macroeconomic and monetary system.
0: Excellent. Well, well Bob, Thank you very much for coming to our studio and talking about uh, all things fixed income. It was great to have you here.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.